morning, church family. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your living and active word. We thank you for this study in Genesis where we are reminding ourselves as we live in such a confused and conflicted time, such a chaotic time, where we're reminded of the rock-solid realities of who you are, what it means to be created in your image, what it means for you to be Lord of our lives. And so, God, as we have already sung, we want to take you at your word. We want to recognize that you have formed us and made us. We want to recognize that the breath that's in our lungs belongs to you. And so we want to surrender every breath, everything in our lives to you. We want to cry out and recognize your goodness as we've already sung. And so, God, we pray right now in Jesus' name that as your word is opened, God, that you'd be with your servant, Lord. God, that I would speak only that which would, would build up and edify the body. God, I, I pray that, um, that you would speak through me, that people would not merely hear my voice, but hear your voice speaking through your living and active word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, for most of us, today is the last day of our Christmas holidays. And uh, if you're like my family, you probably spent some time going to visit aunts and uncles, brothers or sisters, um, uh, grandparents, parents. Uh, we took our family to my parents' house uh, in Hamilton. That's the house where I grew up at. And so the kids can see this was, this was my dad's old bedroom. And these are some of his, uh, some of his toys, the ones that are still in, in decent shape. And then we went over to Dave and Karen Patton's house, Lindsay's parents. And again, they still live in the same house where Lindsay grew up. So they can see this is where, Lindsay's, this is where my mom's room was. And these are my mom's uh, toys. And uh, a couple of days ago, chase, trying to chase down some used uh, sports equipment, we found ourselves in Oakville, uh, which is where Lindsay and I used to live. And so we drove by our, our first apartment and said, this is, this is where we used to live. And that Ezra was in a crib in that room right through that window. And then we even drove around what used to be the Oakville Trafalgar Hospital and said, this is where three of you were born. And look, the parking garage is still there, but the hospital's torn down for condos. But... We, we went back to these, to these locations, th these locations to say, hey, sons, look, this is where your dad grew up. This is where your mom grew up. This is, this is the place where you were born. This is where sort of your story started. Every good writer and author knows how to establish a setting in a story, right? It's not very long that you're watching a, a movie. It's not a very good movie or not a very good book if you're reading it and being like, where is this? When is this, right? A good movie starts, if it's in a city, you see so often it starts with an aerial view of the city and then it zooms in on, a, on the location, the main setting, whether it be a home or an office tower. Or if it's, in a, if it's out in the mountains, you, you see an aerial view, you, you get this, this big picture and then it zeroes in on the actual setting. Moses, being a master author, being writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the book of Genesis, establishes a setting. It begins with this broad panoramic view of God speaking the entire universe into existence. And then it zeroes in on a specific place, a garden in a place called Eden. And what we're going to see from this story is that God's plan 
is to put his people, to position his people in a place so that he can provide for them out of his abundant generosity and protect them with his infinite power and wisdom. God is always concerned about a place. And it it started right here in the book of Genesis, this beautiful place, the Garden of Eden, where he first placed Adam and Eve. Genesis 2 verse 4 begins by saying, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. These are the generations. That statement there, the Hebrew is toledot. It it occurs 10 times. In our English Bibles, we have 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. In In the original version, Moses has 10 chapters. And this is like the chapter heading. All throughout the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 4, and so on, we have the, these are the generations of the heaven and earth, or these are the generations of Adam, or Noah, or the sons of Noah, or Shem. And so th- this lays the structure, the chapter headings, for, for the book. It says, these are the generations of the heavens of the earth, When they were created, in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. You notice in your Bibles that that section is kind of indented, just like verse 27. Notice how that's indented. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 23, that part is indented. That's Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't necessarily rhyme, but the the way Hebrew poetry works is they're sort of mirror images or crisscrosses where things line up. So notice how it starts with the heavens and the earth, and it ends with the earth and the heavens. It's the mirror image. And in the middle, you have this emphasis on the heavens and the earth being created and the heavens and the earth being made. So it begins with a poem, marking a transition, marking a, where Moses is saying, listen, I gave you the panoramic view, the big picture over the six days. Now I'm going to zero in for you on day six. And he marks it with this, with this poem. Also notice that there's a new name for God that's being introduced. All throughout chapter one, it says, God said, let there be light. And God saw that it was good. It's the word Elohim. But now, as, as sort of as a transition, now the word God, Elohim, is linked together with L-O-R-D in all caps. That's Yahweh or Jehovah. Elohim speaks about the grandeur of God as creator, where Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, this is the burning bush God. This is not, the, not, not only the creator God, but the covenant-keeping God, the God who comes near, the God who hears the cries of his people. Elohim talks about God's transcendence, that he's above and beyond, where Yahweh speaks about God's nearness, his Imminence, his closeness, and we're going to see that so clearly as we get into this text. So Genesis chapter 2 is not a, it's not a contradictory retelling, it's a complementary retelling. It's zooming in on one particular moment, highlighting the creation of human beings and being put in this beautiful garden. It's telling the story from a different vantage point. Zoomed in. Verse 5 says that this took place when there was no bush of the field and the land, there was no bush of the field and there was no small plant of the field. And then it says that the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land 
and that there was no man to work the ground, and that a, a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. It says that there was no rain. Now, for people who were hearing it at the original time, for them, it was probably like, well, it just wasn't the rainy season. Have you ever thought about it? What season was it when God created the heaven and the earth? Day, day one of creation, was that in the fall? Was that in the spring? Was that in the summer? Was it, was it in winter? God forbid, no, it couldn't have been winter. What season was it? Is, is Moses merely describing that this was the dry season? And it hadn't rained yet because the rainy season hadn't come as the earth was orbiting the sun. Another way to look at what, what uh, Moses is writing about here is that there, this was the pre-flood atmosphere. That rain isn't mentioned until the rain of judgment comes. And, and, and perhaps that this was the way the world was. There was this mist and the whole atmosphere was different. Maybe that's why people could live for hundreds and hundreds of years before the flood. Maybe that's why the dinosaurs could grow so huge because the whole atmosphere was different at the time. I don't know precisely what, uh, what Moses' intention here was, but I, again, I know Moses is a brilliant author writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's following a pattern. Let, let me show you what I mean. All throughout the book of Genesis, there is, this, there is this pattern of a summary statement, a statement about something being incomplete or empty, and then God acting to fill in or to fix what is incomplete or empty. So you go back to Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the summary statement. And then it says that the earth was without form and void in verse 2. It was empty. It was without form. It says that there was darkness over the whole world. And what does God do? God acts. God said, let there be light. And then as the creation story unfolds, you've got sky and land and water on the first few days, but they're all empty. And then on day four and five and six, they all get filled up with birds in the sky and fish in the water and people and animals on the land. You have this idea of a summary statement, emptiness, incompletion, and then filling. Here, in, in Genesis chapter two, it says the summary statement, these are the generations, says that there's no bush, no rain, and no man. And then the Lord God formed the man. The creation on, on day six was just about done. But there was no man to look after God's creation. These plants weren't growing because water needed to be brought to the shrubs of the field. So God completed his creation by creating human Beings. The, the key to understanding verse 5 from a literary perspective is that statement in verse 5, it, it, it is, is that statement that there was no man. God is completing that which is incomplete. And then the pattern continues because after he creates the man, and we'll get into this next week, Lord willing, he creates the man, but he says it's not good that the man is alone. Man is incomplete. He needs woman. God is continually filling up that which is empty and completing that which is incomplete. That is how God works. That is what God does. And God is going to create a man and he is going to put him in a place for the specific reason of providing for him out of his abundance and protecting him with his power and wisdom. 
And as we look at this text, we're going to see four things that God has given us that we can thank him for. Four evidences of God's goodness towards us. Here's the first one, that God has given us his breath in our lungs. God has given us his breath in our lungs. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the world was, was uncultivated and unprotected, or sorry, and, and, and was unproductive, and so God created Adam to cultivate the land, to produce crops, and to uh, protect his creation. And this man was made from dust and filled with breath. It says in verse 7 that the man became a living creature. But that's really no big deal because in chapter 1, verse 20, the fish are called living creatures. And in chapter 1, verse 24, the animals, the livestock, and the wild beasts, they're also called living creatures. So does chapter 2 sort of describe human beings just like any other animal, just like an evolutionary biologist that just says we're just kind of like advanced apes? No. No, you see, Derek Kidner so brilliantly points out that, that in Genesis chapter 1, it was the nouns. Sorry, you're going to be back in school on Monday. It was the nouns that emphasized the significance of human beings. It was the nouns like image and likeness, created in God's image, made in his likeness. It was the nouns in Genesis chapter 1. But in Genesis chapter 2, it's the verbs that God formed the man. That's the language of a potter, as we sang about, a potter making something out of clay. And then God breathed. He didn't, he didn't breathe into the nostrils of any of the animals, but he breathed into Adam. So the special status of humanity is so clear in the verbs. God formed like a potter, Adam. 206 bones God formed by hand. A tongue with 8,000 taste buds God formed with his hand. 32 teeth, 600 muscles, four and a half liters of blood, 100,000 hairs on his head, five million hairs all around his body. I have less on my head now. He formed all, all every individual follicle. He formed it. All the veins that carry all of that blood, all of the different systems, all of the organs. He formed 37.2 trillion cells. He formed with his hands. We are handmade. I'm sure somewhere in your house, in some special place, you have some handmade gift. Whether it's something that a, you know, a kindergartner made you, or it's something that a master craftsperson made you. Something, that there's something about a handmade gift, isn't there? All of us are handmade. Even Psalm 139 says that, that even those who are, who are sons and daughters of, of Eve, to quote Narnia, we are all knit together in our mother's womb, knit by God. We are all handmade, and we are all filled 
with God's breath. It says that God breathed. Again, it doesn't say this about the animals. God breathed into his nostrils. It says the breath of life. Not just regular, ordinary oxygen, but God breathed the breath of life as image bearers who bear his likeness. God breathed the breath of life into our nostrils. Do you understand? If any of you wanted to breathe into my nostrils right now, you couldn't do it from where you're sitting. Try it. Someone take a shot. Try to breathe into my, no one's going to try it. And no one's going to want, maybe Lindsay would be willing to come up here and actually breathe in. You can't breathe into someone's nostrils without kissing them on the nose. God kissed Adam on the nose. Just like a, a mother wakes up her tiny little baby with a little kiss on the forehead or a little kiss on the nose, God formed this wonderfully complex creature. And as it lay there, God tenderly and gently bent over and kissed Adam on the nose and gently breathed the breath of life into his not. This is what it means to be a human being. To have the breath of life, to have the special status of being handmade by God, and that to have his breath in our lungs. The dignity and the honor on the human body. Yes, we're made of dust. But God made us and designed us. What we do with our bodies matters. Our bodies are a handmade gift. There may be things about our bodies that we don't like. There may be, there may be, there may be people who have struggles with, 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 with a number of different things as it relates to their body. And yet, every human body is handmade by God. And every human being is breathing his breath of life. We have his breath in our lungs. And he is the one who keeps the oxygen flowing. He is the one who keeps us alive and strengthens us and sustains us. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for God forming us and for us breathing on us. Sometimes as humans, we forget this special status. Sometimes as humans also, we forget that we're, we're made of dust. Dust can only be in one place at one time. Our phones give us the illusion that we can be in multiple places at the same time. You're here in this conversation and you're trying to have another conversation and we're, we, we, we stack up meeting after meeting after meeting thinking that we can get all of these things done and we think that no one else can do it but us and we think that we need to be in multiple places. At mul only God can be in multiple places at one time. We are dust. So... People who are made of dust are not omnipresent. We can't be in multiple places at the same time. We who are dust are not omnipotent. We don't have all of the power. Some of us have more strength in our dust body than others, but we are limited in our power. As, as Philophore Darko reminded us last week, we need to rest. We can't survive without sleep. But God is omnipotent. He has all power. So as as creatures made of dust, made of the earth, Adam means earth. He formed Adam out of the ground, Adama. 
We're made of dust. We're limited. And we're limited. And our brains are made of dust too. And we can't know everything. We think we know everything or that we can learn everything. There are some things we just don't know. So when we, when we remember, yes, we are made in the image of God. We are filled with his breath. We are handmade by him. But also we are dust. We are not omnipresent. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipotent. Only God is. So because we are dust, that means that we are dependent. And we were created to be dependent on the one who breathed his breath into our lungs. We're so limited. On the topic of limitations, that that brings us to our second point as we continue to work our way through the narrative here is that the second thing God has given us is that he has given us his boundaries for our lives. He has given us his boundaries for our lives. It says in verse 8, And the Lord planted a garden in Eden. He planted a garden. Now, garden, if you read garden throughout Scripture, if you read, uh, if you read about gardens in ancient history, a garden is not just like a place near your lawn, between your lawn and your house, where you try to plant some, 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 some flowers or some vegetables in your backyard. Gardens in the ancient Near East had walls. Whether it was a hedge that formed a boundary around to keep animals and intruders out, or whether it was a physical stone wall. To be a garden meant a walled area. God created walls, and then he put his creature in those walls and called it good. That doesn't sit too well in our current cultural context, does it? Walls are meant to be broken down. Fences are, 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 are meant to be torn down. We can't have limitations. We can't have, we can't have structure. We can't have boundaries. And yet God planted a garden. He put up some walls and said, in my infinite wisdom, what's best for my creature is for him to live within these walls. He says that he planted a garden in Eden. The Hebrew word there means delight. In Greek, it's translated a paradisos, where we get our word a paradise. And within this garden, look at what God does. It says that he, he made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Remember that phrase. That's going to be important when we look at the temptation in chapter 3. It was pleasant for the sight and good for food. Every tree in the garden, not just the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every tree was pleasant to the sight and good for food. We see the artistry of God, the abundance of God, and the beauty of God, and the bounty of God in this beautiful garden. Keep reading in verse 9, it says, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's also vitally important for us to understand the book of Genesis, for us to understand the whole Bible. There were two important trees in the garden, not just one. Yes, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, there was the forbidden fruit and paradise lost and Milton and all of that. But there was also the tree of life, which is central Central to the garden, central to the biblical story. It's, 
Notice how the tree of life was placed at the center of the garden. Human beings weren't at the center of the garden. God didn't create the boundary and say, okay, human beings, this is all about you. No, the tree of life was at the center. Depending on God for life was at the center. We want to put ourselves at the center of everything. That we're the most important people. That people are the most important. No, God is the most important. Life in God is most important. That is what belongs at the center. Then verse 10 says, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was the, was the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold in the land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river was, is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So we have, uh, we have one garden, two trees, four rivers, and three countries. And some of these countries are rivers, like, like the Paishan. We have no idea where that river is. And it flows to a place called Havilah, where there's gold. I'd like to find that place, but we don't know where that is. There's the Gihon, and it flows to Cush. We have a couple of guesses of where, where those places are. And of course, we're familiar with the Tigris flowing to Assyria. We have people from Assyria who are here, part of our church family. And, uh, and, the, and the Euphrates, of course. So if we were to plot some of these things on a, uh, on a map, it would look somewhat like this. I, I didn't try to put Eden on the map, but there's the two rivers that we know of, the Euphrates and the Tigris. We know where Assyria is. It says that the Tigris was east of Assyria. But we don't know, so down there at the bottom, the unknown rivers, the Pishon that flows to Havilah and the Gihon that flows to Cush. Again, this is also all pre-flood, so who knows how dramatically everything was, uh, was changed there was a spring in Jerusalem that they later named the Gihon Spring. So the Gihon could sort of flow that way. Uh, it also mentions uh, Cush. Uh, Cush is associated in Genesis chapter 10 with Babel. So there's someone from Cush who lives in that area. But again, for Moses readers, remember Moses married a Cushite woman and Cush throughout the rest of the Old Testament is Ethiopia. So Cush could be Africa. We don't really know where Eden was. All that we know is that there was a river that flowed out. And in order for a river to flow out, it has to flow down. Make sense? Simple gravity. So it was on some sort of a mountain. And, and then, again, it's split into four. Like the four corners of like north, south, east, west, you know, that, this quadrant, that. It seemed like... The idea was, yes, there's boundaries in the garden, but there, the whole plan was them, for them to fill the earth and to subdue it, that follow this life-giving river to the ends of the earth and, and spread the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. So we don't necessarily uh, know uh, where Eden was. I don't know if it's that fruitful for us to try to pinpoint or or to guess, but those are just some of the, some of the details that are outlined in the text. Now, what, what does this mean for the original audience? 
this beautiful garden, all of these uh, trees. Well, remember, they were wandering through the wilderness as this is being written. And they're trusting, as they've left Egypt, they're trusting that this promised land that they've been given is going to be a good land. And so they're reading this text that Moses is writing and saying, well, it all started with God preparing a good land and there were rich resources there and there was fruit to eat. And, and, and so if God did it once, then we can trust that this land that's supposedly flowing with milk and honey, we can trust that if God prepared a place for Adam and Eve, that he's, he's preparing a place for us. And if God had a purpose for placing them in Eden... He also has a purpose for us right now while we're wandering through the wilderness. Also, as they're reading this, wandering through the wilderness, carrying this very heavy and very large tent around with them, with all of this heavy furniture because it's been overlaid with gold, as they're carrying all of this through the wilderness, they're not just headed to a place, they're also carrying a place with them, this giant tent called the tabernacle. And as they're hearing the Genesis story, some things are starting to click. They're, there's the reference to the tree of life at the very center, at the very center of the tabernacle. There's a lampstand, and that lampstand, the menorah, has branches like a tree and, and flowers like fruit. The center of the garden has a tree. The center of the tabernacle, there's this tree-like lampstand. They read, they, they read about a river in Eden, and then there's, there's this giant water basin that they have to carry with them wherever they go. They read about gold in the area surrounding Eden, and everything is overlaid in gold in the tabernacle. Even the priest's garments have gold in it. And then they, they also, they read about onyx, and on the priest's breastplate are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel in onyx stone. And so as they're setting up the tent, or worshiping around the tent, or carrying the tent on their way to the promised land, they're recognizing that, whoa, there is like this, there is this miniature Eden that God has given to us right here, right now. That God wants us to know that even while we're wandering through the wilderness, that, that His presence is with us and His abundant generosity and His protection and His wisdom, that God has placed us in this place and that God is with us in this place. You see, God's boundaries are good. Because wherever God happens to have us, He is with us. The people of Israel were a long way from the promised land, and believe me, they were an even longer way from Eden. But there was an Eden in the middle of them. There was God's presence right there with them. You may not be very happy with the boundaries in your life right now but God is with you. 
You may be struggling in your marriage and you feel like your marriage is just limiting you and limiting your happiness or limiting your fulfillment or, or it's, it's just not what you thought it would be. You feel like, but listen, within those boundaries, those good boundaries of marriage, which we'll talk about next week, God is with you there. Even though it may feel like a wilderness, God is with you. And then some of you are single and being like, how could anyone be upset with being married? I want to be married so badly, and yet every opportunity just fails and, and, and never seems to work out, and I feel, so, I feel boxed in by my singleness. But God is with you within those boundaries. You may have this job that's really difficult or demanding or uninspiring. It's not what you did your education for. You feel unfulfilled in it. You feel trapped and boxed in like these boundaries, and yet God is with you in that, in that job. And again, the unemployment person feels like they can't do anything because they can't find a job, and they don't know why it's so hard to break into the job market. Again, God is with you. God puts us in places on purpose. And he puts us in places so that we would receive from his abundant generosity and benefit from his infinite power and wisdom. It was true for Adam and Eve. It was true for the people of Israel. Loved ones, it's true for us. So the Lord has given us his breath in our lungs, his boundaries for our lives. Thirdly, the Lord's given us a responsibility to fulfill. A responsibility to, to fulfill. Verse 15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. First, just a note about that word put in verse 15. Uh, that, that word, sorry, we're not there yet. Um, the word put, uh, that is uh, the same word used in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, to describe God resting on the seventh day. So when God put Adam in the garden, he rested him in the garden. It started from a place of rest. Just be there, Adam, and rest. But then it says that he, after he put him there, rested him there, it says he put him there to work it and to keep it. This is something that's really important for us to recognize. Here's three insights just from this one little verse, to work it and to keep it. Here's the first one, that work predates the curse. Adam didn't, wasn't put in the garden to just relax. Eden was not a, a, not a vacation home. Uh, he wasn't there just to play all day. Adam was put there to work it and to keep it. It's before the curse. Work is not the curse. There are elements of the curse that affect our work. We now work by the sweat of our brow and there's thorns and thistles. But to have to work is not in and of itself part of the curse. We were designed to work. God gave us minds and bodies to be able to do amazing things as human beings. And that is a, a wonderful gift from God. He's given us a responsibility to fulfill. So young people, students, right now, your job, your work is to be in grade six or to be in high school or to be in, it's your job. And school is not a curse. Parts of it are. But homework is not part of the curse. 
Do your job. It's part of growing up. Don't complain to your parents. Don't give your teachers a hard time. You have a responsibility to fulfill. Some of our grown-ups, do your job. Don't give your spouse or your boss or whoever a hard time. It's part of growing up. We have a responsibility to fulfill, and it's a gift of God. It's part of his good purpose and design and plan. Don't mail it in. Be devoted to your work. Secondly, work is worship. Work is worship. Now we can go to this next slide. So the two words, work, abad, means to labor or to serve. And the word keep in Hebrew, samar, means to protect or to guard. Multiple times these two words are used together in the Pentateuch to describe the responsibilities of the Levites. Where? In the tabernacle in the miniature little Eden that they were carrying around with them, the Levites were supposed to keep guard over the tabernacle and were supposed to minister or work at the tabernacle. Adam was like a priest in Eden. When we, that was Adam's design. That, that, that was God's plan and purpose. The tabernacle is just a copy, just a reflection of Eden, when people work, like some people think that the only ones who are honoring God with their work or the only ones who work for the Lord are those, you know, like the pastors, you know, at the, on the staff team at churches or Bible college professors or missionaries. No, teachers, lawyers, early childhood educators, nurses, we all work as worship. And uh, Thomas Verghese, one of, our, um, one of our deacons working with Andrew uh, Wong, one of our staff, is trying to gather different groups of people who work in, in different fields so that they can talk about what it means for them to work in their particular field as a means of worship as onto the Lord. So work is not part of the curse. Work is a good thing. And our work is an opportunity to worship just like the Levites helped facilitate worship in the temple. And then lastly, zero in on that word keep. When, when we use keep in North America in our contemporary language, it normally just means to like, you know, upkeep, ma- maintain it, make sure that the weeds don't grow or anything like that. But it's, the, the, the idea there is to guard the, the, the Levites were to keep guard over the priests and keep guard over, over the tabernacle. There's that idea, like, like, like a goalkeeper, like Edward Mendy for, for Chelsea or for Senegal. He's a, he's, a, he's a goalkeeper. He's one of the best in the world. He guards the net from the ball. And human beings created in God's image have been put in a specific place, but we've been given the responsibility to guard. And we all know how that, I mean, spoiler alert, Adam does a bad job of guarding. Satan slithers into the garden. It should have, it should have ended real quick. Hey, Satan, get off my porch. That would have been the end of it. But he didn't guard And when we're working and when we're resting, we have to be on guard. Because Satan is a liar and our flesh is deceitful. And so we got to guard our eyes. We got to guard our ears. We got to guard our hearts. 
We've got to guard our minds. We've got to be on guard. We've got to be on the lookout for temptation. So as we go back to work, as we go back to school, as we go back into the grind, we go back on guard. We're watching. We have a responsibility to fulfill. And then thirdly, last, or sorry, fourth, fourthly and lastly, we have a rule to follow. A rule to follow. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Notice how the rule begins with permission. You will surely and freely eat from any of the trees. Go ahead, knock yourself out, Adam. Any tree you want, except one. Don't ever think, this is, what, this is the lie that the enemy gave. Don't ever think that God is holding back on you. God wants to put you in a place to provide for you out of his abundant generosity. He's not holding back on you. He wasn't holding back on Adam, but Adam believed that lie. He could eat from any tree that he wanted. Verse 17, but, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Now again, think about those original hearers who were carrying around this tent. You got the tree, you've got the water, you've got the gold and the onyx stone, and then at the very heart, in the, in the innermost chamber, in the Holy of Holies, you've got a box, and what's in the box? What, what, what is holding the whole thing together? God's law. What happens if you go into the Holy of Holies? You die. What happens if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You die. You see, you see what this meant for the original audience? They were seeing Eden all over the tabernacle. And unfortunately, in this text, we have all kinds of foreshadowing, don't we? I mean, we have this command, and Adam's going to break the command, and Adam's made from dust, and God's going to say, you're going to return to dust. And, and then we have a tree, and Adam's going to eat from that tree. And then another tree, but Adam's not allowed to eat from that tree, the tree of life, which he could have eaten from. And, and Adam is put in the garden, but he's going to be driven out of the garden. Adam's supposed to guard the garden, but he didn't guard the garden. He let Satan in, and now there's a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the garden so Adam can't get back in. It all falls apart when we break God's law. The people of Israel had ten rules to follow. Adam and Eve had only one. And God warned them that if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And skip ahead to Genesis 5. They die. And everyone after them. And as the people of Israel, again, the original audience, are reading about the Garden of Eden and thinking about the tabernacle, you couldn't step foot into even one part of that tabernacle, let alone the Holy of Holies, without what? Without death. Without the death of an animal. Substitute. Dying in their place. And then they could enter into worship. And then the priest, once a year, after multiple sacrifices, could enter into the Holy of Holies to, to offer a sacrifice. But there was no access to Eden, their Eden. There was no access to the presence of God without sacrifice. Which is what Jesus came to do. Think, think about this moment on the cross when Jesus is being crucified with two criminals and the one criminal is hurling insults at him and then the other criminal speaks up and says, do you not fear God? 
Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, which is death. That's, what, that's the due reward for Adam and Eve's deeds, death. The due reward for our deeds is death. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise, Greek paradisos, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Eden. Because Jesus died in our place, we have access to Eden. We are welcomed back into the presence of God. It's, it, it's no wonder why Jesus, initially when he was resurrected, they mistook him for someone. Who did they mistake him for? They thought he was the gardener. Because he was the ultimate gardener. He was the ultimate Adam. He, he, he was the one who could welcome us back into the garden, the garden of Eden, who protected it and, and defeated the serpent. And then he's gathered there with his disciples in John chapter 20. And what does he do? He breathes on them. Just like God breathed on Adam, on, on Adam in Eden to give him spiritual life, Jesus breathed on his disciples who placed their faith in him and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then, yeah, major spoiler alert, read all the way to Revelation 21 and 22. And what do you see there? Gold. A tree of life. I mean, there's even onyx stone there. And a big river. We're, we're, we're all invited back. Jesus died for us so that we could enter the ultimate Eden. But don't miss the most important part of this passage. Today you will be with me in paradise. It's not paradise unless God is there. It's not paradise unless we're with Jesus. And loved ones, just as the people of Israel could wander through the wilderness with the tabernacle and still have paradise because they knew God was with them, we can go through whatever we are going through knowing that God has prepared an ultimate place for us, but that God is with us even right now. That he is with us. We may not be in paradise but one day the dwelling place of God will be with man. And right now God dwells with us by the power of his spirit. And so we can experience Eden even now as we look forward to the ultimate Eden in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, I, I pray, Lord for your grace in this moment. I pray for uh, grace in this moment for those who have uh, rebelled against your law and rejected your love and who have, have broken your commands like Adam and Eve did, Lord. I, I pray that they would know the mercy and the grace that is available, available to those who humble themselves and who repent. I pray that they would know that you are faithful and just to cleanse us from all sins when we confess our sins. So God, I pray that you would forgive us for those times where we've broken your commands. God, I pray that you would forgive us for the times where we have not fulfilled the responsibilities that you've given us. 
where we have not worked diligently as for you as we ought. Lord, where we have, have not put out our best effort, where we have not been on guard against the attacks of the enemy or the temptations of this world or the lies even that dwell within our own flesh. God, I pray that you would help us to fulfill our responsibility. God, I pray that you would help us to delight in and recognize and be thankful for whatever boundaries you have in our life right now. And God, I pray that as we people of dust, men and women, handmade of dust, filled with your breath, Lord, every breath that we breathe is a gift from you. I pray, Lord, that we would return, that we would use the breath from our mouths to pour out your praise, to sing and to worship you with, 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 with zeal and with passion, Lord. May this place erupt with praise because it is your breath in our lungs. And because you are a creator, because you are a savior, we pour out our praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.